Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Gabrielle, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, my name is Gabrielle Bauer. I have been earning my living as a writer for the past 28 years. Um, I've written three books, um, specialize in health and medicine, won some awards along the way, and um, yeah, here I am. I reached out to you to talk about your book, um, Blindside is 2020. That's a fantastic name. I'm just I'm gonna say that right off the front. If you actually wanted to show it up as well, too, so we can okay, sure show the viewers. Um, how'd you come across writing something like this? Like it's about the pandemic and everything, which seems to be a topic that a lot of people are just steering away from in general, even though um a lot of things have changed since the very beginning. Yeah, uh, I guess I would say it happened very organically. I never expected to be writing this book. But I had such an intense reaction to what uh, was going on when the lockdowns hit and the whole, you know, on the masks and the COVID culture and the mandates. My reaction was so intense. I became, one might say, obsessed with it. Uh, I couldn't believe that the world was going in this direction and that all these people that I knew were agreeing with it and thought it was great and a you know great way to run a pandemic and, and plus online I was running in just so much vitriol for daring to voice opposition to any of this. You know, one thing led to another. I felt like I needed to find like-minded people. I formed a group in Toronto where I live. We called ourselves QLIT, questioning lockdowns in Toronto, and we grew to over 100 people. And then I joined a Reddit group called um, Lockdown Skepticism, eventually became a moderator. I sometimes joke that I'm the oldest moderator on Reddit. And um, and I started writing essays about uh, COVID that were published in various outlets, you know, from the Wall Street Journal to MedPage Today. And I started collecting links of all the craziness and also links of, of really interesting things that people were saying about the pandemic. So, you know, I had 30 pages worth of links. I had all these articles. And then um, the opportunity to write this book came along, a nonprofit institute that formed in 2021 called the Brownstone Institute um, gave me the opportunity to write this book. And it all just came together. As I say, it was all very organic, I think, born out of my passion and outrage about what was happening. So lockdowns were the first red flag for you. I mean, you, you, the two weeks, I guess, to slow the spread make sense to you at all? I mean, flatten the curve. Yeah. Um, you know, I, no, it, it always, I always recoiled against it on a visceral level, but I could sort of rationalize, okay, two weeks. All right, let's do this. You know, I was never on board, but I could accept it. But what, then when the two weeks morphed into, you know, two months and here in Toronto, six months, 12 months, just interminable. Uh, no, I, it, it didn't make sense. It seemed so anti-human. Uh, such an anti-human way to to manage a pandemic because it was never just about the science to me and it never is you know managing pandemics are never just about the science of containing a virus it's about how do we steer the human family through this you know while preserving some of the things that make life living like earning a living having a business for your family culture arts connection all these things were just thrown aside it was just Stay home, save lives, stay home, save lives. It, it seemed, yeah, completely anti-human to me, you know, and um, and yet all my friends were cheering this on, you know, even my, well, my husband, you know, he's a very tolerant, accepting person, and he, 
he understood my point of view, but he was he didn't share my outrage. So I had to find my tribe of people who understood what I was talking about and, and why this was so anti-human. And I did. Did they like the skepticism lockdown group that you were, were part of? Did any, did everyone have different opinions on like what was the worst part for the lockdown scenarios? Like I know domestic violence went up a little bit, but also like the social isolation. I mean, you're stuck with your family as well, but also friends, neighbors, social interactions that you're supposed to be having that a lot of people don't realize that they actually need, even if it's like, like a front desk job where the person just says, "Hey, can I buy this?" And you're like, "Sure, it's a dollar twenty-five. That's that's very essential in a lot of aspects of things, but people don't realize that. But it also, when the lockdowns were over and everything kind of opened, you know, everyone was able to go back out again, people's brains seemed like they were turned off a little bit more than like I would say usual. And the way that I say that is like people were crossing the street without looking. There was no social interactions. Like people were learning how to say hello again, basically, which it was like as soon as they walk up to someone, you would say good morning or something. And that would really be like, oh, have a good day and then walk away. But they were telling you like your whole life story. And you're like, what is going on here? And I noticed that was just working a front desk job, which to me, I was like, if this would have went longer. We would have had a worse reaction and how the slow comeback kind of was. It took a couple months for people to start getting socially, I guess, situated again. Well, I, and where I live, it's even longer because we just we kept having rolling lockdowns. We had three, really, the initial one and then another one and then a really long one after that. It, it just seemed endless. And um, yeah, it took a very long time. Wait, so you had lockdown and then you went back into lockdown? So you guys were open? Yeah, we, we went back, you know, in Toronto. Toronto was one of the worst places, really, in North America for lockdowns. It was very strict. Yeah, we had stay-at-home orders for months and months and months on end, three times. Uh, so it was very bad. And, um, you know, I, I kind of despaired at, at one point. I'll never forget. I think it was May 4th. This was during the initial lockdown. Um, I called my adult daughter up just beside myself like I, I was sobbing I could hardly speak it was it was just like what is this world coming to and why do people want this why are they okay with this um by by May we already knew we already had good data on the IFR right the infection uh fatality rate of this virus and we also saw from jurisdictions like Sweden and many states in the in the US that did not go so draconian we saw that it you could do it you didn't need to do all this stuff to manage this pandemic and yet people were just doubling down and politicians were doubling down and media was doubling down and i felt like i just didn't belong in the world anymore because if you dared to voice any criticism about this especially online you know, you were called a mouth-breathing Trump tart and a troglodyte and a, you know, flat earther ruling, whatever. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. Uh, the, the culture that sprang up around this. Now, the people that were doubling down on those lockdowns where you were at, were they? did they have any evidence to support their claims or were they attacking it from more of a moral standpoint? I noticed this pandemic somehow started hitting moralities. Like, do you care about people? There was always these questions that were asked. I'm like, I don't think that has anything to do with caring about people. It's just wanting to see, you know, if I have a question about data or if I have a question about a certain message that's coming across and I want someone to show me support for their conclusion of that, that's not conspiracy thinking. That's just critical thinking of like, hey, before I do what you say, I'd like to know that you actually have a rope tied to my back before I jump off this cliff type scenario. Yeah. Uh, well, to me, you know, that's a very interesting question you bring up. To me, it was always a morality play rather than a battle about data. The data is sort of the surface. 
that's what people were grabbing as justifications for their positions. But I think that the underlying argument was always about um, what kind of a world do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a perpetual infection control zone? Do we want to view each other as disease vectors? Do we want to make protection from this one threat, you know, the, the, the cornerstone, the center of how we organize our lives? You know, that's that's one side. And then the other side is, no, we reject that paradigm. We don't want this kind of a world, um, you know, even if it increases protection by whatever increment. This is not a, a human or humane or joyful way to live, and we don't want this. And so I always I always felt that those arguments really were what was driving the whole thing under the surface. And that's, uh, you know, that's what informed my book to a large degree, because I don't just talk about the science or the data. You know, in fact, that's a relatively minor component. I really talk about, you know, the underlying psychology and sociology all these forces that were driving the whole thing. And I interview people who address that. Yeah, you interview philosophers, artists, and other people that have voiced, um, I would say, a, a right skepticism on some of these restrictions. But which one do you think caused the most, I guess, social disturbance? Do you think it was the lockdowns? Do you think it was the mass? I mean, the mass is still a problem, even where I'm at today, even though a lot of people have dropped it. But there's people that feel too is okay. I've seen plenty of those people. And we've always had safe people in our societies, people that go a little bit overboard a little bit longer than most. But I mean, everyone dropped the six foot rule that went out the window, I think first, even after lockdowns and everything, there's nobody that even remembers really that anymore. The wiping down surfaces was another, but I know people that still feel don't feel comfortable going out of their homes and have everything delivered to them, which I'm not trying to convince anybody that they're wrong or anything. I'm just trying to understand like what in your mind, I guess, would be the most social disturbance out of everything that we had of like lockdowns, masks, back. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a big three and I don't even know if I can pick one, you know, lockdowns, masks, and, uh, and the vaccine uh, mandates. I, I think that they're kind of equally disruptive and disruptive to the social order as we knew it. Um you know, the right for a long time, I think now, most recently, it's been the vaccine mandates that has really polarized people. And that's been an interesting progression for me, um, because for me personally, the vaccines were, were not a big deal. You know, I got vaccinated and boosted and all that. It was I know it might sound strange to some people, but I didn't really spend that much time deliberating about it. You know, I'm I have a fairly high tolerance for risk in general. I never worried about COVID, even though I was 63 when the pandemic hit. I'm 66 now. Um, I mean, thankfully, I'm healthy. I didn't have any other risk factors. But even so, I was in a higher you know, risk group just by virtue of my age. But I never gave it any thought. I looked at the data. It looked pretty good. And I just wasn't going to worry about it. And so I felt the same about vaccines. I thought, you know, yeah, of course, there's a chance that this could be harmful, but you know, I'm I'm a healthcare writer. I work for the industry. I know it is not a, you know, a benign industry, the pharma industry. But I also know there's checks and balances. And I thought, okay, whatever. It's it's not a big deal. But having said that, I really had a problem with this whole vaxxed versus unvaxxed culture that emerged early on, and uh, in Toronto, I don't know if you heard about this, but it was it was 
made international news. There was one day when the Toronto Star, one of the major papers in the city, the whole front uh, cover was a collection of quotes from people who were furious at the anti-vaxxers. I want them all to die. I want them to, you know, catch the virus and I want their kids to suffer. I mean, horrible stuff. Just horrible stuff. And I never wanted to have anything to do with that. And, and early on, I promised myself that I would never ask anyone their vax status and I would never make socializing with anyone contingent on their vaccine status. It, it just seemed like that was not anywhere that I wanted to go. And I didn't want to have anything to do with that polarization and divisiveness. And, you know, my daughter hesitated quite a while um, before getting vaccinated and completely respected that, um, you know, and, and understood her reservations. And I even wrote an article about it. And uh, and then my son stopped after a couple of shots because he experienced some um, cardiac effects, you know, that were hopefully not too serious, but that still concerned him and concerned us. And so we were all happy that he stopped. So that's where that's where I landed. But I, I did ultimately, when I spoke to a lot of bioethicists when writing my book, and so my position toward mandates really shifted too. Initially, I wasn't even opposed to mandates, um, as long as they were not too coercive. I thought, well, it's kind of like school mandates. You know, we have School man, uh, school mandates for a bunch of vaccines, and as long as there's a way to opt out. But then, as I saw that the vaccine mandates were just getting crazily coercive, where it was jab or job, um, this was not like your school mandates. And and then also talking to these bioethicists, and I think I refined my opinions, and I really came to oppose the mandates more than initially, um, because. If we are actually going to uphold bodily autonomy as a foundational principle in our society, then we've got to go all the way. We've got to uphold it. And, and I think we do in our liberal democracy. Um, honor bodily autonomy is something quite inviolable. So that's kind of where I landed. You know, and I think it's important to make that distinction between are you vaccinated and where do you feel on the issue? Well, yeah, I mean, they changed the term vaccinated. So even some of those people that would tell you to get your shot or anything probably aren't even categorized as vaccinated anymore because you need to have like, what was your stopping point? Did would you get two shots and then did you stop it when they were start rolling out boosters or did you? No, only get I got some. I got some boosters too. Um, again, I, I and it was odd. I had zero side effects. Like even I didn't even have a sore arm. So I kept thinking they must have given me saline, but you know it's doubtful. They just had no side effects at all. And I still haven't gotten COVID either. But, you know, I also came to see that the vaccines were, you know, they, they definitely overpromised and underdelivered. Uh, you know, if you have to keep taking a vaccine every few months, I mean, the effect waned very quickly and escape variants formed very quickly. So, you know, I'm not, not impressed with the vaccines. But again, I'm not, you know, I don't take an extreme position on them. Where I take a more extreme position is on the mandates and the degree of, the insane degree of coercion uh, that was used and, and of social um, ostracism to get people to comply. And that's what bothered sure. me more. 
we shouldn't be labeling people as anti-vaxxers if you're just questioning the effects of this vaccine. When I'm not talking about side effects, I mean just the efficiency of it. it. Like if it doesn't work, it doesn't do the job of what other vaccines have done in the past, then people got to stop relating this vaccine to those other ones. I mean, everyone getting the vaccine without even thinking about it are people that did. Um, in your case, for instance, it's just because we know vaccines have worked in the past. There's no reason to question this, but there's a few things like new technology that started people started finding out information coming out about it. Then it also it doesn't stop COVID, and then it just lessens symptoms. Which, in my opinion, I've told older people they should get the shot, um, just because they're in that high risk category. But if I'm 25 and I work out every single day and eat really healthy, my big question was why is nobody talking about just eating healthy or going outside and doing some exercise? Things that we have known to keep our body strong and maintain good you know immune systems but that wasn't a question that was brought out by authorities or anybody from the health officials and to me i started getting a little bit more skeptical on certain things but do you think it's like the vaccine cars that started coming out do you think that was like a really i mean that i think that brought a bigger divide amongst people it started becoming more of a badge of honor less than about the vaccines of effects or efficiency it started being like, I have my vaccine card. Do you have your vaccine card? Because in my town, eventually Walmart and other places for like a brief amount of time, we're talking about you can't come in here unless you're vaccinated. And I was like, hold on a second. Are we going to start really segregating? Are we really going to start doing this? Like you have to bring an ID and, and people are even getting fake vaccine cards. And I was like, I'm not that insane. I'm not going to do that. My buddy was like, I got three of them if you need them. And I'm like, what are we doing? You're like the guy who sells watches on the street. Like to me, it was just insane to see how we started going. But I think a lot of this helped push that divide a little bit farther, where at this point, people started inquiring about other people's private medical advice or um, information when it comes to are you vaccinated or not? No, I know. And, and uh, you know, a, a real case in point of that, which I um, describe in the book, uh, it was on April 1st, 2022. I met a friend that I hadn't seen in, in quite a while, and we went for a walk outside. and you know so we're walking and then she bursts out crying and i say okay what's going on and she said i'm so afraid i was so afraid she said you know i'm not vaccinated and i was so afraid of telling you i thought that like you wouldn't go for a walk with me and you wouldn't want to be my friend and this and that and the other and like and and she said oh she thought you know that maybe even um you know because it was uh april 1st or something that uh you know I would think it was all an April Fool's joke. I can't remember everything she said, but she was so afraid. And, and I never even, as I told you, I never even thought to ask her. I decided I was never going to ask anyone their vac status. I didn't care. I had more important things to discuss. You know, but that's how polarized it got, you know. And she had no reason to believe that I would ostracize her for being unvaccinated. But she was so afraid because of all the opprobrium and, you know, insults that she had received that she was really really frightened of telling me even though i didn't care so um well some of that labeling that was going on you mentioned like calling somebody a trumper or a trump support that happened in canada i would be like why are you guys using that word over there <laughs> i mean no it does happen in canada especially online when i would have discussions online you know that's where it happened the most uh where people would call me i'm on sociopath you know here i have for 63 years, nobody had ever called me a sociopath. And now I was being called, you know, a sociopath and worse. And, you know, you want people to die and on and on and on. Again, you could not have civilized discussions about any of this. Um, that's what was the most interesting to me, I think, and, and what I wanted the most to write about 
like how just the whole group think how people could get so insane um you know over this one issue and and willing to end family relationships and friendships you know I, i've been fortunate so far in that none of my real life relationships have ended on account of this um i know for the first few weeks i was afraid to talk to anyone about this except my immediate family members uh just because the environment was so hostile online but again at one point i came to the decision that i had to be part of the solution which meant being honest about how i felt about this and so i did start to talk more to friends and even to some of my clients i work as a freelance um health and medical writer so i have a lot of clients and some of my more trusted clients that i had worked with from you know a few years i started to talk to them and and some of them have even um purchased my book and none of them have discarded me so far uh you know which which is nice uh not not all of them agree with me for sure uh but i find when you when people know you and you talk to them or maybe i've been lucky it's been pretty good online is another story online i have received insults that i didn't even know existed and so this trump tar business happens more online i mean is the conversation even being had like do you find that you're able to have an actual conversation with someone about it who might not stand on your side of things i always i i've had one interaction recently that did not go well um with someone at my work i his lockdown experience was a lot different than mine mine was like damn i can't go to the gym and i was upset because they were tossing out like five thousand dollar fines and things of this sort but i mean his lockdown he was in lockdown for a year and a half um, which was way longer than we had lockdowns but he flew his family over he wouldn't leave his house he had everything delivered to him and i just asked simple questions that you think would just be very basic which is just like he asked me if i had my shots i said no i work at a gym a lot of people we don't really talk about it but a lot of people aren't vaccinated and he was like you don't care about people and i was like i do care about people but i mean yeah <laughs> i care about my family the people i can put a name to their face to i mean i care about people but you're you know this this whole like you're you're, you're creating imaginary people I've never met before. So that's a really hard bargain to sell. And he kind of looks at me. He goes, well, I care about people. That's why I got your shot. It's a civic duty. You get your shot. And I'm like, do you care about the people in China? And he just goes, yeah, I care about the people in China. And I just go, what are you doing to help them? And I yeah. just stared at him <laughs> and he like went silent on me because he was talking from an older perspective down to my perspective. And I just go, look, man, I'm not trying to debate you here. I just, you know, if I ask questions like this and you find yourself not being able to give me an answer, I think these are just reasonable things that should be talked about. We can have conversations. We're friends. Like I, I handshake them and everything. Um, but, you know, I started seeing that, like I've lost family members to just the, the political divide stuff on Facebook or something like that. And all I did was post up the April 19th. They found more evidence that it came from the lab um, in one of their intelligence hearings. And I go, remember when we called everybody a conspiracy theorist who were talking about this? Like, can we talk about it now? And then I noticed some people that, you know, I'm close to just like, nope, not having it. Trumper. I'm like, I'm not a Trumper. It's not. So I think that whole political discourse really leaked into the public's message and perception of health. But I'm curious, out of all the people that you interviewed, did you find yourself not agreeing with some of those people that had maybe different takes? I noticed everyone has different takes on lockdowns, masks, vaccines. Um, Not really. I mean, the people that I interviewed, I chose them because... I wanted to sort of through them make an argument. So I would say that the, they all 
came at it from different angles. So that's where you get the variety in the book. But, you know, I chose the people with a purpose in mind, which was just to present an argument. So I chose people who had sustained me throughout the pandemic, people that I admired, people whose um, contrarian voices I found were very um, intelligent and, and reasoned and thought out. So, um, but again, I guess the only point of where I had initial disagreement, some of the people who were really opposed to the vax mandates that I interviewed, the bioethicists um, I interviewed, there's a one chapter um, in which I feature um, Aaron Cariotti, who you may have heard of, and uh, uh, Dr. Julie Panessi, who's kind of his equivalent in Canada. And they were two people who really shifted me, you know, who initially maybe I didn't agree with fully, and they shifted me toward really understanding um, what was wrong with, with these coercive vaccine mandates. Now, was everyone that you spoke with aware of the social interactions that were going on between people just about the whole divisiveness so because so, i've talked to some people that really only focused on the data but i'm just curious i'm like does ever you you have to notice the social divide that's going on as well too that somehow leaked into politics and my biggest fear is that we've also let it leak into the way that we view our health institutions and in my opinion i would be a pessimist in that, this aspect of things but i don't know if there's a way back besides privatized medicine you know, a lot of people are not going to trust anything that comes out now, whether it's a new vaccine or anything. And I think it's because this message has somehow not only been fumbled, but it's also landed in other areas that it shouldn't be connected to, where now the people that you say world population control and overall government control, I would have not agreed with. But then I start looking at it and I go, dude, I mean, I don't I don't know what to believe at this point, because there's so much that has come out that I would have thought would have been crazy. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an area where, you know, we, we sometimes have discussions uh, within the Brownstone uh, Writers Group. Brownstone Institute is the uh, is my publisher. And uh, there's a wide range of views on that. You know, at, at one end are people like me. You know, I'm probably the least conspiratorial person that you'll meet. I just my mind doesn't go in those directions. I, I tend to think and, and argue that the world went totally crazy. Uh, but it was more a question of group psychology and sociology and, um, you know, aided and abetted by fear and the media that pumped the fear into everyone. But as far as, you know, the whole thing being planned or depop or anything like that, it's just, to me, it's too much of a stretch because it didn't just happen in the U.S. It happened all over the world in very disparate countries with completely different political systems and aims. Same thing happened. So unless you have like this very small group of puppeteers controlling, you know, virtually all countries in the world, um, it just seems like a stretch to me. But, you know, then there's other people who are much more inclined in that direction. And I'm always going to listen to them, you know, and I'm open to being wrong about this. You know, this is where I land now. Um, so, yeah, there's still a lot to uncover. And there's certainly, you know, you know, whether or not there was any conspiracy, there was certainly a lot of collusion between governments and the media and um, Big Pharma to craft and maintain a certain message and suppress all others. You know, so the way I see it and discuss it is, you know, from where I'm sitting, I don't believe that there was necessarily a conspiracy before the fact, but there was certainly a lot of malfeasance along the way and collusion along the way. 
I agree with you. I agree with you 100% on that. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, do you think that, like, who has the most damage out of all the age ranges that went through this pandemic? Do you think it's the younger kids coming up that had to really deal with masks? As I know a lot of people talk about the social thing with masks and children. But, I mean, coming from a mother's perspective, I know that your kids are a little bit older, but I'm, I'm interested in, like, I have little nephews. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, they're homeschooled, but at the same time, I'm like, I, other kids your age had to go through a little bit of a confusion aspect of things. And I mean, my generation, especially as well, too, kids, I mean, a lot of people are either just two-sided now where it's you're 100% vaxxed or you didn't get a shot or you got one shot and you stopped. And even that's a little bit contentious. I'm like, guys, we're in our 20s. We shouldn't be fighting like we're 80 years old and have nothing better to do. You know what I mean? Like there's a weird thing that starts to happen. And then social media is very a big aggravator in that aspect of things because I feel like the message tends to get lost rather than if you're having like a Zoom call or if you're sitting face to face with someone, you can actually try and rationally talk about some interesting points and some thoughts on both sides but then it, that can sometimes get lost too. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, uh, you know, one of the chapters in my book is called Children First. And I feature some people who really felt as I do that children should come first. You know, it's a very, very important aspect. And I think that was, if I really think about it deeply, that is a lot of, that explains a lot of my horror and recoil about what was going on from the start. I'm very much a children first person. And although my kids are a little older, I had them fairly late in life. So they're, you know, in their mid 20s now. And when this all started, they were both graduating from university. They both took an extra year or two. Um, and so they ended up both graduating in 2020. Imagine what a year to graduate. You know, they both ended up their schooling online. They both stepped into a kind of non-existent job market. It was very tough. And the lockdowns were really hard for them too, because my son, for instance, he was living in his basement apartment when this all hit, you know, and he's a tall guy and he had literally two inches above his head to get to the ceiling. You know, there was no light in the place. Like that's very depressing for a young person. I was concerned for his mental health, you know, being in this kind of a place, you know, it, it was really not a nice place to be living. And both my kids are involved in the arts, you know, they're sort of local performers and music and all that was canceled and you know and that also all their extracurriculars everything that really made life tolerable for them because neither of them loved their university studies and they really depended on these other things just to survive mentally and emotionally and all that you know the rug was completely pulled out from under them and I was concerned um, for their mental health and for all the young people um you know, th these things are very difficult to talk about because if you say anything, people are going to go, oh, so you don't care about old people. You know, well, no, it's not that. I'm an older person. But I care more about preserving the future for young people. That is my priority, you know. And that's just, you know, that's how I'm built. And I think that's very important. And to me, it seems natural and normal and human for the older people to protect and care for the younger people. I don't want kids to be shields for me, to protect me. Again, you know, I know it's a controversial opinion, but I really feel strongly about that. I, I, I think I want to protect them. You know, I would throw myself in front of a bus for my kids, as most parents would. And that's what I want to do. And that's why I was so outraged. It was all like, save grandma, save grandma. Well, okay. 
let's maybe talk about other ways to save grandma. But I'm most concerned about saving the present and the future of my kids and their generation, their mental health, their you know, social, spiritual, financial health, their prospects, their life experiences, all that. And everything about the COVID measures seemed to go against that, just threw them under the bus, you know, and I wasn't okay with that. So I think a lot of my passion came from that. You know, some people have told me, oh, you know, so you were a little inconvenienced, you know, what's the big deal? Well, no, that's not at all about that. I was in fact not inconvenienced by the lockdowns. I'd been working from home for 20, well, 28 years now, 25 then. My income was not affected. My life situation wasn't affected. You know, I had all the comforts. I was in the laptop class and all that. So no, it's not because I was inconvenienced. I was just really outraged on behalf of the young people. I think there's a there's a price that's going to have to be paid at some point. And when I, when I when I say that, I mean people's lives went on frozen or they went on halt for a little bit. Kids my age, um, younger. And I just feel like that's going to come at some point, either in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, whether, I mean, my generation is really good at having existential crises all the time. Um, but I noticed that when everyone started, my age started coming out of lockdown, they really started going and partying hard. Um, like it's never gonna, you know, we got to get all the time back. And I'm like, there's going to be something that's going to lead to either distraction from goals and life of what you wanted to do, education stuff. I know a couple of friends that didn't go back to college. Um, just kind of they said i'm gonna take the summer off well it's been about a year and a half and they're just like i'm not going back to it so i'm curious on that price to pay i mean it's an interesting question i want to get your thoughts on i mean do you think that has any weight to it i mean i just thought of it like a minute ago but i start looking at kids that maybe younger i guess third grade fourth grade that just completely went I mean, for them it's fun you get to play video games and do whatever you want at home but then you realize you got all this work that you got to catch up on and your kind of whole kind of life just got put in a state of frozen just like everybody else and then tossed right back into the thing and expect you to do the work again like zoom calls changed everything uh, telehealth changed everything there's a lot of things that have changed that i think a lot of people are noticing but also it's like now we're accepting and I'm like, well, there's some things you, I mean, I think you have to go to a doctor to actually get your appointment done. Telehealth does can only do so much therapy for sure. But, um, I mean, it's just better to go in person in my opinion, but also, I mean, there's a lot of things like transportation. There's a couple of things that just slowly are trying to get back to normal, but I've kind of like, we've seen it happen another way, which I feel like if anything happened to be forced to be like, Hey, this is how we're going to do this now oh, you've already experienced it. So it's not that different. And then you kind of just would accept it more. I know that sounds maybe a little bit conspiratorial, but no, 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 I, I agree. I completely agree with that. But, um, you know, it's now in the toolbox, lockdowns, masks, mandates, all that stuff. It's in the toolbox. And it's always easier to do something a second time than a first time. So now that, you know, the world has, has demonstrated that it can do this now that the government leaders have demonstrated that they can and will do this it'll be easier to reach into that toolbox a second time and do it again which is i think why people like me write books and articles because we don't want this to happen again we don't want it certainly don't want it to happen the same way um you know and, and i agree with you that we still don't know all the ramifications this is going to have on on children or the children who grew up with this i know that one thing that was really pushed on them that I found very disturbing is this idea that, well, you know, wear your mask because you don't want to kill grandma, you know, kill your immunocompromised uncle or whatever. You know, this idea 
that if you inadvertently transmit a virus to someone, you're killing them. Like that's absurd. That's completely absurd. Nobody's killing anyone. Humans have transmitted viruses to each other since time immemorial. You know, it's um, it's just one of the realities of sharing a planet with viruses. Yes, sure, take precautions. If you're feeling sick, stay home. Don't go visit grandma, whatever. But this idea of inflicting this guilt on children, well, you don't do this because you don't want to kill somebody. I think that's extremely harmful um, to saddle children with this kind of guilt. Um, and it, again, it's just not a reflection of reality. It's not how the world works. Um, so, you know, this, this really weird morality propped up during COVID that still hasn't gone away and that I find disturbing, you know, this idea that we have the right to perfect health and no one has the right to make someone else sick. And, and again, it's, you can't even, it's not a right that we can really debate because it's, it's not a right, a right, it's a reality. You know, where there are humans and viruses coexisting, and this is going to happen. So we, we cannot claim the right to never catch anything. It just doesn't make sense. Do you think that killing grandma thing happened because they talked about that the older populations were more susceptible to the virus? Um, and it, was it just an issue with the message of being spreading? Like, I'm trying to understand how people got that in their heads, because that is a real thing. People were – at the beginning, it was like a Thanos snap. That's what they were talking about. It was like half the people you knew were going to die. And then my grandparents live in Delaware, and they were on lockdown for a very long time, and I had not seen them for a whole year. Not because I didn't want to go see them, but it was just because uh, we don't want – we don't feel comfortable doing – you know, we're trying to keep ourselves safe and everything. And they were very restricted on some things, which was like – Okay, that's a year of time I don't have. So, you know, there's a real big danger here. Then you have your grandparents that want to go see their grandkids, and instead they stand outside a window and wave at their grandkids, and their grandkids are like, what's going on? Like, I want to go see my grandparents, and my little nephews were like that with my grandparents when they decided to finally go out of the house. They still didn't feel comfortable going over and hugging or doing anything like that. Where I'm like, this is really, really dark. You know, this could have went a little bit longer. This could have been a little bit worse, and that we would have a completely different reaction. Like, I'm surprised when people put their foot down at mandates. Like that was a good thing that people did, but it could have went a really bad way. If more people got vaccinated, then they would have been like, you got to get your shot or you're not going to be able to shop at Walmart or you're not going to be able to do this or do that. And, you know, for sure. And, and this whole idea also of um, assuming that we know what's good for the, the elderly people, you know, the, there was, I talk about that in the book too. Like people did not um, really ask older people very much you know what do you want it was just we know what's good for you isolate a lot of older people elderly people came out and said you know what we would rather see our grandkids than we would rather even if we had to live a year less but spend our last last years on earth seeing the people who matter most to us rather than staying safe for, for what if what purpose you know because a lot of very old people once they reach that stage the most important thing to them is family connections. It's not just what I call staying metabol metabolically alive. You know. Did you notice in the beginning of lockdowns when people were very helpful in trying to get other people groceries? 
I know like a lot of people were mentioning that in the beginning, like over here, it was a big thing. People were like, if you need groceries, I know you're older. I'll, I'll get you groceries. I was like, yeah, this is only going to last a couple of weeks though. And it's going to go right to, it's going to go turn sour. And then we noticed it. Then it became more of like, you know, put your fucking, I saw a person that looked like they had the rabies look, which was like, put your, like they were yelling at me to put my mask on and we're outside jogging. And I was like, hold on a second. Like there was just a disconnect. And I think now when you see things reported, there was a recent one that was on an airplane where a woman was telling an older man to put the mask up. And she was my probably my age, maybe a little bit older in her 30s. And the older man had to be 75, 80. It was a big story, but he had his mask down. She had her mask down yelling at him. And then she punched <laughs> him in the face. And I go, it went from saving grandpa to punching yeah. grandpa. Like yeah. that <laughs> well, that's a good, twist. I like that. Yeah. It's a good headline from saving grandpa to punching grandpa. And I recently, in, um, uh, earlier this year, I went to um, my uncle's 95th birthday party in uh, uh, New Jersey. And, um, you know, he was 95 and he wasn't wearing a mask. He's got all his marbles, you know, he's, and, um, you know, very few people were wearing masks because they, they respected that isn't what he wanted, uh, which I thought was lovely. You know, we all had a great time and, um, you know, he knows, he knows what the risks are, uh, very smart guy. And, um, he wanted to be surrounded with, with faces, you know, he's a bit hard of hearing, can't hear people when they wear masks. And so he set the tone for that. Um, yeah, it was a a great illustration of, you know, we can't, we shouldn't assume that we know what elderly people want and that what's good for them. Again, this whole idea, it's good for you. It's for the common good. Well, let's discuss it. Who gets to decide what the common good is? Does the common good mean everyone's sitting in their homes until this, you know, virus goes away, which is never? And, you know, again, there's so many assumptions, which some of us who are philosophically inclined, you know, questioned, okay, what is this common good? You know, who gets to define it? Is it Trudeau? You know, is it, is it Biden? Like, who defines the common good? You mentioned writing just so you can remember it and have like the history for it, which I think is really important because a lot of people like I don't think people even really remember the feeling of what it was like before vaccines came out, like that fear of like when vaccines going to come, when is this going to happen, when are we gonna be able to leave our homes, you know, that fades with time. Um, you know, even you, the memory of a loved one sometimes fades with time. It sucks, but it's what time does. But what about the constant reminders? Like, I mean, do you think that we should have, like, there's constant reminders everywhere, people that still wear masks, people that still ask questions about vaccination or not, people that are still pushing vaccines, people that still want to have the discussion and feel like they can talk you down or call you conspiracy theorist if you don't, you know, whichever side you are. There's a site called antivaxxer.com that just reports vaccine anti-vax deaths. And if you look at some of those deaths, they have two shots. So it makes you question, like, what are you labeling as anti-vax? But there's going to be horrible things like that that emerge through all this that are going to be reminders that someone can come across on the internet but i mean do you think that we're ever going to move completely 100 percent past this or do you think it's there's always going to be something that's going to be somewhat attached to this i mean do you think that we should forget the experience of the whole pandemic and the lies i think it opened me up to a lot yeah no we should never forget it should be one of these never forget events because i always saw it as, as a you know a major historical event you know, even when we consider the longer arc of history, you know, for, for millennia, I see this as a major historic event because it was the first pandemic in the truly digital era. And that completely influenced both the, the response, you know, the 
the, the strategy and it also influenced the social environment to create this, uh, you know, insane level of polarization. And there was so much damage, I think, done politically and socially and done to the social fabric and to the whole idea of democracy that I think we need to keep um, these conversations alive. And yes, there are some people who just want to put it all behind them and like, okay, let's just go party, you know, and that's, that's fair. But I think that it's important to have people like me and like you and, you know, people who in some way um, seek to keep this alive. So we hopefully avoid doing the same thing the next time, you know, one, one of the casualties of this pandemic was free debate and free speech. As we talked about earlier in this interview, you know, it was, there was a certain message that was acceptable and anything outside of that was in some way suppressed. Um, and, you know, even the whole idea right from the start, you know, follow the science, follow the science. That was another thing that I identified as absurd just from the start, because this is not just a scientific problem. You know, there's mental health implications, economic implications, spiritual implications. So this is not just about a containing a virus. So if we're going to put scientists at the table, at the advisory table, we also have to put economists and historians and uh, mental health experts and legal experts have to put them all at the table. And then politicians decide not just based on what the pandemic experts say on the virologists and epidemiologists, but on what all these other disciplines have to say. And in fact, many of the people that I interviewed in my book, they brought up this point that this pandemic was driven too much pandemic management just by a narrow group of epidemiologists they are not the only experts who count um yeah i think a lot of the doctors even that spoke out with the great barrington declaration the people that signed that that were saying this was against policy i mean the the censorship thing is real that is a very big issue i don't know if you've experienced a lot of that when it comes to where you're able to put up your book or wherever i know you have brownstone to write your articles and things but there's i youtube has censorship policies this won't go on youtube it'll be on spotify though but the information that i had been talking about a year ago with dr pierre corey about ivermectin and all these other types of drugs those are now well accepted as forms of treatment to help with covid symptoms on their cdc website so it's updated now where that those YouTube and everything has not updated their uh, their guidelines at all, where I go, what about like we're spending way too much time shaming something and letting one thing be the only answer and it's all under this guise of trust the science, which doesn't make sense because I think the only science that was available when that was really getting thrown out there was everyone was researching a certain narrative. Then all the other stuff you could find on ResearchGate and other websites that are from overseas or something not in the United States, you found different studies being like, well, this actually sunlight helps. And then that ended up reaching over here. And then you had to go to other news sources and everything to actually get your information. I noticed there was a couple scientific journal sites that would really cover the full range of like the COVID treatments and everything like that of what's effective and what's not. But then the main ones that were always getting shown were from the NIH or the WHO that just pushed the same thing, like vaccines are effective. And I look at their author affiliations and you see the Pfizer company. I'm like, hey, guys, is that not a conflict of interest? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, totally. Again, it's um, like I work for pharma indirectly as a freelance medical writer, often my my um, uh, indirect employers. I don't deal with them directly usually, but, you know pharma companies. So, you know, I see all the good, good, the bad and the ugly in the industry. And um, 
I do think that there was sort of this, this emphasis on vaccines as the one solution was not just pure as a white driven, you know, as, as the driven snow. I think that there was a lot of money interests in there and there was a lot of missed opportunities to study other interventions that were, that involved much less money. You know, they were very quick to say, oh, well, this one, you know, randomized controlled study showed that such and such intervention didn't really make a difference. So let's forget about that. Well, no, how about we study it some more? Because there was all these great potential treatments and strategies, as you say, like sunlight or like some of these early treatments that, you know, were cost pennies or nothing. And really, it was very unbalanced that there was so little interest in continuing to study those. They were so quickly dismissed in favor of just this one solution, the vaccine. So I, yeah, I definitely don't believe that the, all the motives in that were pure. Now, through all your health, like health writing and everything like that before the pandemic, did you, I mean, from where you're at now and your perspective of everything you've seen across the pandemic, did you notice anything like that before? I mean, everyone had a stereotype of big pharma and things of that sort, but that went right out the window as soon as this pandemic started, which I think it was obviously the fear narrative. I mean, there were moments I was a little bit nervous, just not for my own, but safety, but for other people's when it came to like, maybe I should do the proper thing and get a shot and everything like that. But, you know, I think, you know, that fear narrative got pushed really hard by media. I would blame media overall, because I think that distorted the population more than anything. But the whole pharmaceutical, the thing that we already knew there was a stereotype behind that just went out of the public's consciousness and we completely forgot about that. We had fear and we placed it in our government's hands thinking that they'll, they'll know what to do with it. I mean, what are your thoughts? It was bizarre, you know, especially as well, I consider myself politically homeless now, but I think my roots are probably more from the left, certainly the environment that I grew up in. So it was very bizarre for me and other people like me to witness um, people from the left completely um, throwing away all cynicism because the left has traditionally um, been somewhat critical of the whole big pharma machinery. And suddenly it was just, nope, no criticism. Yeah. R RFK Jr. is the great example. He's a Democrat and people are trying to label him as like a Trumper or all that because he has skepticism on the vaccine, but he has skepticism on some other things too. But I mean, he, he's, he's left and that's what I thought. I thought it was the whole thing was about talking about, he writes about big pharma all the time. So, I mean, there's clear evidence of that. I mean, I see big pharma as this, I blame not so much this pharma company or that pharma company, but I've, it's a system that we've evolved into. We've, you know, big pharma is big, 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 big business with, with huge investments for every new drug or vaccine or treatment they develop, huge, huge investments. So if you can invest a billion dollars in a new treatment, well, of course, there are many financial incentives to want to make it look like it works well. So I think that's just built into the system that we have evolved, um, you know, and, and part of that system is because there are checks and balances by governments, you know, they have quite rigorous requirements for, I'm not talking about the vaccines now, but for new drugs, you know, you have to have two parallel clinical trials showing the same thing and you have to have this and that. It's a lot of regulatory requirements. So it's a huge, huge investment. So of course, pharma companies will want to slant the data and present it in certain ways to make it look good 
so their drug will get approved and used and endorsed by doctors. So I just blame it's this whole crazy system in a way that the whole that the pharma industry has evolved into. It's you know, it's a loaded system. And um so yeah, you know, I even though I work indirectly for the industry, I I think I see its flaws pretty clearly. And I see how data is, if not outright falsified, it's certainly slanted, presented in a certain way in order for the results to look a certain way. Yeah, of course, that happens all the time, you know. And and yes, pharma controls, you know, it's the regulated controlling the regulators because pharma sponsors everything. They sponsor, they give money to all these regulatory agencies. And so it's just a system that we've evolved into, which is not a very healthy system. Do you think that in the next coming years that we're going to see more, I guess, call-outs of the pharmaceutical companies for just their things that have been going on for a while? I mean, I noticed the fentanyl deaths finally got mentioned in our news over here, which is the first time in a very long time that has ever happened. But they blamed Walmart and like Rite Aid and all that for distributing uh, certain opioids and things of that sort, which doesn't make any sense at all, which I'm like, it's the, a lot of these pharmaceutical companies and health institutions that just write, all, write it off real quick. But I've started to kind of notice that America and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that advertise pharmaceutical Right, direct-to-consumer advertising. That's got to stop. That's got to be straight up. I mean, I just listened to an ad on Spotify the other day that was talking about – it was a cream to make you younger, and they were talking about like temporary like um, blurriness of vision, and then it said blindness, and I was like, whoa, 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 what? I was like, what we'll do to stop the aging process is ridiculous, but people, they didn't even speed it up like they used to do. They just normally said like 50 different side effects. And I go, I bet you someone's still going to buy this because at this point you just accept that everything comes with the risk. And that shouldn't be like that with some of these types of things. There are some things that their risk really outweighs the benefit. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't I don't know. I don't have great confidence in the foreseeable future that we're going to move away from the model because it, it, it's like the momentum is so powerful. Um, and, and there's a whole, uh, you know, this is something else that I explore in the book. There's this whole biomedical model of life that has just taken over. You know, we all we're all sick. None of us are well, like the expand the definitions of different kinds of diseases are expanding and expanding. We're all sick and we're all going to become dependent on these this does not seem like a healthy model, but that just seems to be where we're going. And I know this because I write about this. You know, there's all these new drugs coming out that cost astronomical amounts, like some of these drugs for advanced cancer, you know, $500,000 million. And some of them might only extend life for a few months. You know, is this how we want people to spend the last few months of their lives, just chasing after drug after drug? And the, there's just something really bizarre about the whole system that we're revolving into but again that the juggernaut is so powerful and and pharma is so powerful and again i don't see them as sort of just you know big bad evil entity i just see this as we've we've evolved into this really extreme and rather unhealthy system of health where you know you had mentioned this earlier we don't spend a lot of time on prevention at all and it's just oh here's a new disease let's throw a new drug at it you know, let's spend millions and billions researching it and then throw a new drug at it that might work for a little while and then it'll stop working. So I don't know. I'm not very hopeful. I would love to see the whole paradigm shake down and shift, but I'm not too hopeful. My pessimism started when they got my Hollywood crush to say, you need to get your shot. 
That was Jen- Jennifer <laughs> Aniston when she oh. went on screen and said oh, it. I no, was don't like, "Tell me she's your crush." I, I was know. like, "No, nah, what's wrong with Jennifer Aniston? You don't like Friends? That's my that's like my Hollywood crush." But no, no. Uh, well, this is one this is one point where we disagree. I never liked <laughs> Friends. I don't I don't like okay. the humor, and I I don't know. I think I mean I'm a woman too. Wait, are you I a just... Seinfeld fan? Yeah. Big okay, that's fan. why. That's why. Okay, good. <laughs> There's a division with people that either watch Friends or they watch Seinfeld, but it's never usually typically both. But even like, I mean, you hear Woody Harrelson come out and start saying a bunch of things. And I know he said it more of in a joking because I think that's the only way he could really have said it on air. But I noticed the crowd had like a forced laughter, but I think it was because a lot of people were like – I. A lot of what he's saying is like very. You can check in the back, and you can kind of see the whole track to what exactly what he is saying. But I don't know. Celebrities coming out and telling people to go get their shots. Martha Stewart saying that I feel great after my two vaccines, and I'm just like, yeah, we need to separate that too. Like, why, why is our cele- why are we taking medical advice from celebrities? It's going to be like the movie Idiocracy, where Terry Crews is president and they're watering the crops with Gatorade. I don't know if you've ever saw that, but it's a hundred percent foreshadowing. But I mean, what are your? Did you look into that at all about celebrities? It's a, it's a, like a last question I have, but I just thought of it because it is interesting to me. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was part of the whole craziness, you know, of giving people donuts or, you know, $100 oh, yeah, to get vaccinated. Yeah, all, all that. Yeah, exactly. So the whole celebrity pushing, I mean, I, you know, I know that there was PR companies that engaged some of these celebrities to push the messages, but that's, you know, that's what they do. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just part of that whole um, campaign, I guess, that was mounted by by media and PR and government, you know. Uh, so it was it was all equally absurd and and comical and, and ultimately not productive because that's not how you first of all the, the social division it creates and that's not how you really get people to buy into a product you get it, people to buy into a product if you are able to demonstrate that the product works and makes people better and helps them avoid risks and then then it's it's like market economics and people will buy in if you have to coerce them to that extent yeah, there's something wrong. All right, I lied. I got one last question. Did your kids read your book and did you sign it for them? <laughs> no, they still haven't read it. You might, my, my, uh, they might. I mean, I've written other books before and my kids, they tell me that it, yeah, it's embarrassing to read your books, mom, because, you know, they know me so well and, and reading sort of my intimate thoughts because I get very personal in the book. You know, I talk about like I, how lockdowns led me to try LSD for the first time, you know, at age over 60. I talk about a lot of personal experiences. Like it's not an academic book. I mean, it's a very well-researched book. I have over 500 references, but it's, you know, I'm a memoirist also. um, And so I inject a lot of personal experiences. And I think sometimes for kids, they've read some of my other books. It's like, oh, we don't want to hear, you know, read everything that mom has to say. Um, but my husband has read it and liked it and a lot of my friends and as I said clients have bought it so uh, so I'm fine with that and my kids and I've talked about a lot of this stuff ad nauseum so um, you know if they read it eventually fine. Has it been picked up by any giant platforms like any major news corporations or anything like some of the big ones the letter companies like CNN Fox any of these corporations or are you just Brownstone and others? Well I mean the publisher is Brownstone and there's a a Spanish publisher approached me and they uh, wanted to publish it in Spanish and that was okay with my publisher. So that has happened as far as picked up. I don't know what you mean. Like as far as has it, has it gotten major media? Some, you know, some fairly major media, but I think one thing that I've found 
you know, a bit of a disappointment so far. It's a lot easier to get the attention of so-called right-wing news outlets than left-wing ones, you know, and it really shouldn't be that way because it's, it's my book, while it takes a position, it's a reasonable book. And I wrote it not just to preach to the choir, but to help the other side understand, hey, this is why some of us objected to all this. We're just, you know, here's the menu, have a look. That's it. But there are, you know, unfortunately, on the left, there are some outlets that as soon as they hear, oh, you know, that it was against lockdowns or whatever, they're, 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 their brains slam shut. Um, so that's part of what I'm seeking to do, you know, in addition to uh, promoting the book on so-called right-wing outlets, which has been a lot easier. I am trying to um, speak to the left, too, and I, I do have a you know, I'll have a, another podcast upcoming with someone from the left in the UK. So I'm chipping away at that, but it, there's no question that it's a lot harder. And I lied again, but this is one last question. LSD, would you <laughs> recommend it for me? I mean, was it good? Was it a good experience? Was what a good experience? LSD. Oh, <laughs> LSD. You know what? It was a little disappointing. And you know why? Because I grew up with one of these old fashioned European mothers um, who was always like, oh, you know, don't take LSD. If you, if you do, if you jump out of a balcony, you will jump out the balcony window and kill yourself. You know, like she, to her, it was just the worst, worst possible thing you could do. And, you know, drugs were evil. And, you know, I experimented with weed and all that, but I'd never you know, taken uh, psychedelics. And then when I took LSD, for me, the effects were rather subtle. You know, I had a bit of waviness, a bit of, but it was not, it was nothing extreme. I didn't have this explosion of color. I, I didn't see God, you know, or any of that stuff. So it was a little disappointing. Um, everyone reacts differently. But, you know, so I, I would actually like to try it again and maybe a, maybe a slightly higher dose and see if I um, experience more. So uh, I think that those substances are interesting. I like the idea of mind expansion and alteration. Um, I've experimented since with mushrooms as well. Uh, but, you know, that experience with LSD was not as spectacular as I might have liked. I talked to a lot of people in Canada about psychotherapy and things of that sort when it comes to using either psychedelic mushrooms or trying to find some way of like doing it in a more because the whole narrative on that is turning. At least the stigma is kind of being sucked out of it. People are trying to look at the benefits of it, which I think is really important. I've never tried it. I don't know if I ever will. Um, I've been recommended to try it multiple times just because people think, oh, with your personality, you might have a great experience. I was like, dude, no. My grandpa scared me when I was little. He said I did acid back in high school or whatever. And he's like, every time I crack my back, I get high and it's not real, but he had told me that since I was a kid. So now I just, there's that fear that's instilled into me, but well, there you go. So it's like you, it's like my mother, your grandpa instilled this image, but you know what? You may find that it's entirely different for you. So, you know, you could always, again, it's obviously up to you, but you could always try microdosing if you're scared, just take a really tiny dose, see what that feels like. And, you know, so that'll be a, that'll be a topic for another day. But um, where can people find your links to your books if you have any social media platforms you um want to promote as well too? And I'll make sure I link those in the description. Okay. Uh, well, the book is available on Amazon and on Lulu. Um, my website as well. You know, if you link my name, I have a website. So I've got all my contact information on there as well, and and the book. And I made a, another promise I made to myself is that everyone, anyone who reads a book and then wants to talk about it with me, wants to give me feedback on email, I will respond to. And I have 
kept that promise and intend to keep it because it's it's wonderful interacting with readers. Um, I think an audiobook is in the works as well. And yeah, that's that's it for now. And I will link all your links in the description for people to be able to click. Blind Sight is 2020. It's 20, yeah, it's actually a double pun, right? Some people didn't understand the title at first, but you know, it's hindsight is 2020, but it's also the year 2020 in the, the 2020 vision. So that's why I said it was a great title because I think it was this morning when I was looking at it again. I was like, oh wait a minute, I get it. It's like before it registered, <laughs> yeah. but then it didn't fully register to another yeah, meeting. That's right. Board, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the double pun. So um, and I'll link all your book links in the description for anybody that's listening to this. They can click the description to be able to click on your links and check out your books. Um, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on the show. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.